Welcome, everybody, to another very special episode of The Hopeful Majority. Now, you're like, Manu, come on, man. You keep saying every episode's special. Well, what can I say? The Hopeful Majority's building. It's growing. Last time we've had presidential candidates, we had people like Andrew Yang on. We're going to have some interesting folks in the future. And today's special because it's the first ever live recording of The Hopeful Majority in front of a live audience. And this was at the Mercatus Center in George Mason University near Washington, D.C. And we've actually got a return guest on. The amazing Ibu Patel from episode nine, What Activism Gets Wrong Today. If you haven't watched that, you should definitely watch it because I think it's great context for this episode. It's a great follow-on conversation. Now you're like, why Ibu a second time? We're only about, I think, 19 weeks in to the hopeful majority. Well, it's because Ibu is a very interesting leader in today's moment. You know, he was uh, the lead faith representative uh, during President Obama's time. He co-founded or he founded and is the president of an organization called the Interfaith America, which is the largest organization in the country focused on interfaith pluralism and religious diversity. And he's got very nuanced perspectives. And if you know anything about the hopeful majority, nuance, 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 that's our bread and butter. We fight outrage. We build nuance every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. Now, instead of me doing a monologue as usual, I'm switch it up for a quick second. I want to give you a quick message. Um, this conversation is really interesting because it interrogates the difference between building and breaking. What do I mean by that? It's something that Ibu talks a lot about, which is I think at today's moment in society, we reward people that break, we reward people that critique, and we do not pay enough attention to people that build and that grow things and that want to create new institutions. And the fact is that American society is at a very uncertain, important, and importantly, moment of opportunity where we need people to think about what can we be building to overcome our differences? What can we be building to respond to new needs? How do we respond to rapid technological innovation? How do we respond to a collapse in faith? How do we respond to a collapse in community and increase in loneliness? I think we need people that build. And yet at this moment, we reward the flamethrowers. We reward the bomb throwers. We reward the people, the political pundits that like to splice and dice and challenge, as President Obama said in 2004, that there is no conservative America, there's no liberal America, there's the United States of America. Our objective is to think about why at this moment we reward outrage as a society and we critique hopeful, nuanced conversations across lines of difference. And I think Ibu is someone that has really interesting perspectives on this, given his deep bench of experience and also somebody that interrogates a lot of this work a lot. And I would love your support as we continue growing, because I think that people like you and I, you know, the people that aren't living their lives in the political world are craving people that build because we want people that can build new institutions, shore up old institutions, and think about a world in which this ambitious experiment in democracy, America, continues on into the 21st century. Here's my live conversation with Ibu. And by the way, in advance, I apologize for any audio issues. It was an awesome conference. We had a great crowd. And I think this will be interesting. And if you're listening to this, hop over to YouTube because you'll actually get to see the live video of this conversation. I'll see you on the other side. All right, are we live? These mics are live. Ibu, you remember the last time we did this, we wore the same clothes? It's only like four outfits that dudes have. Yeah. <laughs> I picked number three today, you picked number one. I so. know, exactly. I went with different colors. Um, uh, thank you so much for being here. And Ben, thank you for the program that uh, you've hosted here. Just for some context, by the way, this is actually a live recording of a podcast as well, simultaneously. And so I'm very excited for our listeners to also hear this once the conference is over. Um, and the podcast is called The Hopeful Majority. Ibu and I were actually in conversation on episode seven, and uh, that was one of our most impactful episodes, and I've learned so much from you. So the first question that I've, I've got for you, Ibu, is you, know, you recently wrote an article that I think went live today, correct? Or yesterday, the other, yeah. yesterday. Um, Not that anybody noticed either yesterday or today, but yes, it went live I noticed. Hey, I, I read the article. <laughs> I read the article. So the article went live yesterday, and specifically, you recently watched a show on a Hulu called The Bear. And could you tell us a little bit about why in the Chronicle of Philanthropy you wrote an article referencing a Hulu show about a restaurant in Chicago? Sure. So it's great to be with you. And I am, you know, you told me like six months ago, Manu, that like 
you were all in on the idea of like storytelling through media and like making sure as many people heard of this message as possible, I am now convinced that you're not talking unless somebody's recording. Like you're basically like, that's, that's your stipulation. So I love that you're making this a podcast and I think I'm on that train. Um, let me ask, how many people have seen The Bear? Okay, excellent. So uh, <laughs> let, me let me contextualize it in this. So a couple years ago, I wrote a book called We Need to Build, yeah. which is in some ways a center-left version of Yuval Levin's A Time to Build, right? That's kind of a center-right. The importance of civic infrastructure and the strength of institutions, We Need to Build is kind of a center-left version of it. And as I'm doing my kind of initial round of interviews, uh, uh, there's a set of journalists who are basically asking the question, you know, like mid-20, late 20-somethings who are like, you know, what do you have to say to my generation hmm. who has been traumatized by institutions and is deeply skeptical of them? Hmm. That's like the exact phrasing, right? And like, but the fourth time I heard this question, I was like, dude, where'd you learn how to swim? <laughs> yeah. Did somebody just throw you into an ocean and tell you to make it back to shore? Or did like, you go to a YMCA or a park district or a Jewish community center or a, a middle school where like somebody 50 years ago painstakingly built a structure, created a swimming pool, hired generations of swimming teachers so that when you were seven years old, somebody could teach you to dog paddle and hmm. dead man float and backstroke, hmm. right? And it kind of struck me like there's this, there is, it, it is considered sophisticated someday in, in some sectors of American society to just dump on institutions and pay zero attention to the crucial role they've played in our lives. Mm. So this is kind of in the background for me as, as I'm watching The Bear, which is, which is set in Chicago, right? And it's got all this music that I love. And I'm watching this show, and I'm like, this is a show about the holiness of an institution. By the way, only you could see a show and come up with that conclusion. I think lots of people <laughs> see that. Uh, um, but this is a show about the holiness of an institution. Yeah. Like, it is a show about a group of people who give themselves to the processes and practices of an institution. So there's an episode in season two called Forks. I'm gonna do a million spoiler alerts here, but it's for good reason. It's, it's for sociology, so <laughs> it's for a good reason. It's for a good cause. It's for a good cause. And like the, the character in the show who's like kind of the wildest guy and has dealt with all kinds of challenges in his personal life and continues to bring those challenges to work, right? <laughs> Uh, which, you know, is kind of, there's a, a, a current in the zeitgeist that's like, bring your whole self to work and basically, like, spill your guts everywhere. Hmm. And in this episode, at this exceptional restaurant in Chicago, Alinea, he starts at the polishing forks table. Hmm. And the instruction is, polish these thousand forks perfectly because that's all we serve at Alinea. That's our standard. And for the first couple of days, he just rails against it. Like he brings his whatever from outside hmm. to work. And then after day three or four or five, he starts to polish the forks perfectly. Like he starts to meet that standard, right? And it's like, it's like you're literally watching Zen Buddhism in practice. It's chop wood, carry water, hmm. right? You are watching a religious process of somebody giving themselves to the practices of an institution, and actually, like, they're kind of healed in the process. Hmm. And there's a kind of a great wisdom to that. There's a couple other episodes that I love, or scenes that I love, which I'll just describe. Now, one is um, uh, one of the characters in the show, she's kind of the chief operating officer of this little restaurant. She's pregnant, it's a super trying period, she's tired a lot, and uh, uh, the sous chef says, I'll make you an omelet. And the process by which she goes through making an omelet, people remember this episode? Just like she chops the chives just so, just so. She crushes the potato chips just so. She hand butters the outside of the omelet. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, that's craft. Hmm. This is a person who takes great pride in their work. Like what does it look like these days to take great pride in your work? And to say what I am engaged in as a teacher or a camp counselor, or a swim instructor, is a craft, right? And again, like I, you know, I think that there is a sacredness at play here. There's a, a value in Islam called isan. It means excellence. That is how you're supposed to operate, right? And when I watch this, I think to myself, 
the message of this show is if you can do this for an omelet, if you can do this while polishing forks, you can do mm -hmm. this at your charter school. You can do this at your social service agency. Man, only if, only if I made my omelets that way, my mom would be very happy. I have, yeah. to, I have to ask you, you know, when you think about the, the question of discourse and dialogue, I know that folks are wondering, well, why are we talking about this TV show on Hulu? Why are we talking about building through the lesson of a restaurant? And there's this fascinating tension, Ibu, that I found you exceptionally articulate on, which is this question which is right now it feels like when people are trying to build that restaurant, when they're going to work, when they're thinking about crafting something, there's a countercultural sort of trend in our society to destroy, to tear down. There's this tension in our society right now between building and tearing down. And I think being able to navigate that tension is crucial to understanding why maybe something like civic discourse is not reaching people or meeting them. Because I imagine that civic discourse is an essential component to building healthy institutions, but not one to tearing down. So could you speak a little bit to this tension that you've really interestingly articulated in that book and how it relates to the purpose of that show? So Manu, uh, do you mean civic discourse, which is the way I think of that is like how how people in a civil society engage with one another, or do you mean like a national narrative? Well, I think one of the things we found in our breakouts is that no one can agree on the definition of civic discourse. And, and I think that's part of the challenge, but I think in this specific context, I mean that as a national narrative. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's a great line by, I'm gonna just like quote promiscuously here because it's the baggage of graduate school and that's, that's what we do if you go to grad school, right? So. Uh, um, I mean, there's the classic line by Alistair McIntyre that I cannot tell you what I am going to do until I tell you the story or stories that, of which I am a part, hmm. right? And so question is, what is our understanding of the American story? What's our understanding of that story, right? Um, is it, uh, is it a, a lie from the beginning that is totally irredeemable? Is it, um, perfect from the jump, 1776, and every ideal was beautiful and enacted? Is it the King story, which is, uh, uh, and the Frederick Douglass story, and the Obama story, which is, you know, uh, uh, America has great ideals. They were, they were imperfectly, partially and imperfectly enacted, and we who have been, mo who have suffered most will choose to call America not a lie but a broken promise and give our lives to fix it, right? right. Which is the narrative that I find most inspiring mm -hmm. and most useful, right? Um, and I think that we're, we're at a point where the narrative is fragmented dramatically and there's, there's competition for what that is. Do you, think, do you think negotiating between those narratives has implications for how prevalent civic discourse is on colleges and our society? Because I would imagine again that if you think one of those narratives is true, you're much more likely to come on to the, to the feel that you actually don't need to disengage and, and, and talk to people that are different than you, that in fact, um, an engagement requires a belief that we, as a collective, are more stronger, more effective than just individuals. So could you speak a little bit to which narrative has implications for civic discourse specifically? Yeah, so I mean, I, 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 I obviously think that a narrative that is a narrative of possibility and repair and moving forward. Mm -hmm. Like basically a narrative of positive momentum and, there, and then, you, then you write the next chapter, right? Which is where I would call the kind of Frederick Douglass, Jane Addams, uh, King, Obama narrative, right? Which, right. Is, which is American democracy can be thought of as an imperfect beginning and then a story of increased inclusion and positive relationship. And it is our generation's task to write the next chapter. I think that that is a partially true story, but the negative story is partially true too, hmm. right? And so if, if I have a choice between partially true stories, I'm gonna choose the more inspiring one. Hmm. And honestly, if I have it personally, this is my personality, right? Like I will see a half, half full glass of water and be like, thank God for the gallons of water, <laughs> right? Yeah, like yeah. why wouldn't you just see abundance? Like it's free, hmm. right? Now, now what I mean by that is why wouldn't you just see dramatic possibility everywhere. And I think that one of the great tragedies of our era is that in certain sectors of American life, it is viewed as sophisticated to have eyes for obstacles, not opportunities. And I just, I think that that's a tragedy. And I think that that is largely 
guided by narrative, right? A great line by Walter Lippmann. Uh, uh, at any given moment, uh, um, the, uh, the, the story at any given moment will determine what human beings will do. So that's really interesting that, that there's a sophistication to obstacles. There's a sophistication. Some, some in, in the political world might call it victimhood in some ways. And I know that that's not necessarily what you're getting at, but this phrase and knowledge that you're hitting on seems to be in the zeitgeist of our politics right now. So let's cut through the tension. Let's get to the core of one of these key questions, which is that oftentimes people will say, I think, uh, especially the folks that are listening to this right now, well, you can see abundance, Ibu, because you operate from a position of privilege. That abundance is something that can only be seen because we occupy this type of status in society. How do you expect somebody that, let's say, is quote unquote oppressed to be able to see society in that way? And then to your point, there's a sophistication excitement attached to that. There's actually a sense of, as we talked on the last episode, a sense of social credibility yeah. to making that claim. Yeah. So one of the questions I asked my friend John last night was, why is it that the winners in the system, the people who go to Sarah Lawrence and Stanford, are amongst the most aggressive delegitimizers, mm. as opposed to the ones who assume the most responsibility, right? I mean, Ross out that a few years ago, wrote a, wrote a piece that I love that was controversial about like America's old aristocratic class, the, the George H.W. Bush class, where he was like, one of the positive things about that class is they assumed their privilege was assumed, and therefore their corresponding responsibility was assumed, right? And so, I mean, if I was a college president, I would begin first year convocation. I would say, you are amongst the most fortunate people in human history. You're amongst the most fortunate people in human history. Alhamdulillah, praise be to God. Hmm. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? And by the way, like that's not like, I don't, that is, that is not a minority view in certain sectors of American life. So I, you know, I love Brian Stevenson. Uh, uh, if I had to name one American hero right now, it'd probably be Brian Stevenson. And he tells a story, he's like, you know, when I was at Eastern University, I was walking around and I would literally say out loud, I'm a college student. I'm a college student. Mm -hmm. I'm a college student, right? I think that that's amazing. Yeah, right? I walk around and say, oh, I'm a college student. <laughs> oh, I'm a college I mean, student. <laughs> uh, so so part, of, part of, I think, my, my view in the world is something of, it, it is, it is uh, um, a recognition and of who I was when I was 20 or 21. Uh, and I, right. I'll tell you, I'll tell you like, you know, I learned most things by way of maximum humiliation. My teenage kids sure. seem to they like, to have like gotten that gene, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. also. But one of, the, one of the moments when I felt maximally humiliated, I remember, I'm in a taxi in Bombay with my dad. It's January. This is a very powerful story. January of 2001. Yeah. I'm, I don't know, entering my, my final year at Oxford. I'm doing, I'm doing a PhD at Oxford. And Oxford is like an uncomfortable place for all kinds of people. There's a great line about Oxford. It's a, it's a, a university of 10,000 people studying alone in their rooms. And one day you wake up and realize you're one of them. Right? Damn. <laughs> it's a great line. About, right? And so, like, it's, it's, it's an it is a lonely, cold place to be. Right? And... What do you do if you're doing a PhD there and you're lonely and cold? Well, you, ha you somehow create sophisticated theories around it. So I'm with my dad and I'm like, you know, Oxford doesn't know what to do with its South Asians. They don't know what to do when the empire strikes back and Gyatri <laughs> Spivak this and like subaltern that and, you know, being the, the subject and not the colonial, blah, 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 you know, and being oppressed and marginalized. My dad's like looking at me. He's like, oppressed, huh? If you're oppressed, what do you have to say to that kid? And he points to one of the literally hundreds of leprous beggar children on the street, hundreds of them at every street corner in every city in India. Hmm. And I had this like image, for whatever reason, like this image emerges in my mind of like me sitting down with this leprous beggar child and being like, I know you don't have a left arm, but I feel really uncomfortable at Oxford. <laughs> the word oppression kind of, do you see how it? You just gotta can, add some sophisticated theory to yeah. it and it'll make sense. You and know? I'm like, this is, this is grotesque, right? right? And, right. So, and so I wanna pause for a second and ask the question, right? In the language that we use, what reference point ought we have when we use our language, right? So should a law student at Stanford shouting down a federal judge think to him or her self, um, 
I am one of, I am, I am uh, hurt by the actions of, of that individual with more power than me. Mm. Should that be that student's reference point? Or should it be the eight billion people in the world? And where you are positioned vis-a-vis -vis those eight billion people? I think that's an interesting intellectual question because terms like marginalized are very obviously relative. Mm. So who is at the margin of your center, right? Why do you think over the last 20 to 25 years, this narrative of marginalization and oppression and systemic inequality, which seems to be something that is, there is a reality to it as well. There's a reason why that narrative exists. So it's not about undermining necessarily the core tenet of the narrative. But what I'm curious about is why do you think it, is, it has taken such levels of narrative power in the country? Yeah. So I don't think it's the last 25 years. I mean, I, I, I Well, was, that's only how long I, you know, I've been around. So I, but I guess there is a time before human me, Human civilization. You know, yeah. Right. <laughs> before Manu and after Manu, Yeah, right? yeah. That's my um, world, you know. I just think of it, yeah. We're all like that, uh, Yeah, exactly. We're all like that. Learning through humiliation. Um, <laughs> um, so, so let me just say, inequalities, I, I want nothing that I am saying to suggest that gross inequalities don't exist that need to be addressed. I mean, is, you, you were in the Obama, suggesting. you were affiliated with, you were on the Obama yeah, Space Council. Guy, you know, right? I'm a center-left guy. You're a center-left person. Um, and, and I don't know, I've been to, there, there is grotesque inequality in the United States. There's deep suffering and around the world, right? And I'm, let's give you like a, a very like concrete image of this. So February 2020, right? Like we're just starting to hear about the pandemic go to Whole Foods in North Center on Ashland and Belmont and Lincoln in my neighborhood. It's 80% white and Asian. Just like, that just seems like the world, right? Like, you, like you're getting your fancy cut up pineapple, whatever, right? Like that's, that's the world, right? So I made a visit in April of 2020, 80% black and Latino. What's going on? We rich people aren't gonna go get infected at Whole Foods but we'll send them to do it. That's what's going on, right? Like that is a grotesque inequality. It exists. Now the question is, how do you address it? I do not think the best way to address a grotesque inequality is to give cultural currency for victimhood narratives. Hmm. I don't think that that's a way to do it. I think that there are I think that these inequities and inequalities have to be addressed. I think that is one lane of diversity work. I think there's two lanes of diversity work. One is an equality lane, another is a cooperation lane, right? There's two right. lanes. I think the equality lane is an important lane, or at least a dignity lane. I think we should ask very hard questions about how to do that right. Incidentally, these two lanes ideally are somehow connected. I think it's a bad thing when one cannibalizes the other, as I think current equity work does vis-a-vis -vis cooperation work, right? But let's not pretend that that's not a problem and let's ask questions about how to address that problem. So the way I would prefer to go about this is show me, where, show me what good looks like and let's ask the question, how do we do more of that? Hmm. So I'll tell you one place I think good looks like when it comes to racial equity is athletics. So I wrote a piece about this. I, I read a column for the Chronicle of Philanthropy now, and my, my previous piece was, was on, on uh, uh, athletics as a model for racial equity. So let me give you an interesting story. Uh, the University of Alabama graduates its first black graduate in 1965. Does not have a black football player in the field until 1971. Pretty illustrative of the fact that sports in American life was even more racist than the rest of American society, okay? Sports was even more racist because somebody was beating you <laughs> and there's a symbolic quality. So right now, the NBA is 70% black and the NFL is 60% black. And 70 years ago, SEC schools would literally not play integrated schools. Mm -hmm. Georgia would not play Ohio State in 1959. So how does this sector go from, we will not allow black players on the field to being 70% black? That, it's not perfect, 
It's not heaven. By the way, nothing is heaven but heaven. Hmm. But it's better. Yeah. So, so if I'm the physics department at a university, I'm like taking a walk over to the football team and I'm asking the question, what are you doing right? And honestly, I think this is so blatantly obvious, it blows my mind that it's not like elementary in diversity work. Well, part Who's of it getting, is blatantly obvious. It's blatantly obvious that there is, in the equality dimension of diversity work, the question is, how do we get a reasonable representation of people from a range of populations into uh, um, high, high status, high income, comfortable places in American life, mm. right? That's the question, right? So an obvious way to go about that is to say, well, show me where it's happening. It's not happening in law firms. 2.2% of partners in law firms are black. That's abysmal, okay? So where is it happening? Well, it's happening in athletics. By the way, I say this as like the dad of kids who like spend 20, 25 hours a week in athletics, and I would literally choose an NBA point guard over a Nobel Prize winning physicist for smarts any day. And I am not kidding. Like the, the level of intelligence you have to have to play high level sports is just beyond. Because you're making a thousand decisions a second, you have to memorize a playbook that that's, that's then changing second by second on the field, and you have 300 pound linebackers who are about to flatten you. Hmm. There's no other place in American, no other sector where that happens. And you're making decisions in that, right? So why wouldn't we ask ourselves the question, what is it that this sector, what's the secret sauce, what's the framework that this sector is doing well, such that you go from zero to 70% in a half century? Right, so you know, folks are probably wondering, what is the question of equity, equality, sports, this entire narrative of whether or not American society is about progress, whether or not it's about oppression, where do we stand on this? Why are we talking about this when we're supposed to be talking about pluralism? And to those people that might be regular listeners, you know that we would actually spend two hours talking about sports, we'd just go on that tangent, but it's not the case. And so here's why I think this matters. In our last breakout discussion, we had a conversation on bridging divides on college campuses. And the two central tensions that came up in that conversation were one is that students always ask the question, where do you draw the line and why do I have to actually have a conversation with someone I disagree with? And two, is how does civic discourse or dialogue respond to my desire to build X, Y, or Z world? That in fact, civic discourse is this weird thing that just feels kind of stodgy at best and feels like it's not necessarily meeting people where they are. And so the conversation around your narrative of how to think about the world, I think is necessary in one way to try and get people to adopt dialogue. But the question that I want us to focus on, I'm curious what you think, is why do you think most people in our country right now, when they think about dialogue and discourse, think that it is something that is not, that it's not necessary? Like why is there this tension between comfort and discomfort? Why do you think there's this tension between a lack of perspective and perspective? So, I hope I'm gonna answer your question here, right? I think, I think we take an awful lot for granted in this country. And I think that when you see a contrast that is not, like, like my way of social change is not to move from heaven down, it's to move from other ways of organizing human life up, right? So when you read an article in the New York Times from five or eight years ago, uh, um, I, that begins with the line, in the city of Mostar in the nation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, when there is a fire on the Muslim side of the city, the Catholic fire department does not respond. And you sit up straight and you realize, oh, actually, that's the norm in human life. The norm in human life is that identity groups build institutions which serve their own identity group, right? In the tens of thousands of years of, of human life on this planet, that is how things have, have mostly happened. Mm -hmm. We simply take for granted that if you go to the emergency room because your mother has a stomach ache, that a team of healthcare professionals who think that the other people are going to hell because they have deep fundamental disagreements on, on questions of religion will cooperate to make sure that your mother stomach feel better, right? We just take that for granted. And part of what we want to do at Interfaith America is to say, actually, that is a massive achievement in human civilization. 
It's a massive achievement. And if we don't start telling the story of that achievement, in other words, if we don't have a story that matches the achievement of our civil society, if we continue to tell a story that's some version of like, you know, how do you speak to my generation that is suspicious of institutions? If we continue to tell ourselves a story of only the bad things, only the suspicions, then we will not build the civic muscles to continue, hmm. right? And so like I think to myself, you know, my parent, my kids play Wells Park baseball. 50 years ago, somebody built a baseball league at Wells Park, which is totally run by volunteers. I do not want to take that for granted, hmm. right? And the Jewish dad and the Palestinian dad coach their kids together on the same team, and they do not argue about Jerusalem. I do not want to take that for granted, right? right? I actually want to tell, I want there to be a national narrative that like celebrates the idea that America is a place where feuding ethnicities and religions from all over the world come to not kill each other, come to build a nation together. We do it in a, a set of political processes, the voting booths, separation of powers, political parties, et cetera. But we do it, I think, most importantly in civil society, hmm. in soccer leagues and baseball teams and hospitals. Right, right. Yeah. Which is why, by the way, I love Daniel Daniel Stid's Art of Association sure. newsletter, you know, and like I'm a... And the other reading I would recommend, by the way, my friend Lexi Hudson's written a book. Uh, it's coming out. When is it, Lexi, coming out? October 10th. October 10th. I should be getting commissioned for this. Um, October 10th, The Soul of Civility, and it's another really interesting read, again, on how to conceptualize this work so that it meets people where they are. You know, what's interesting about you... Can I ask you something, Manu? Yeah, sure. Why do you keep talking about meeting people where they are? Why? I, mean, I, I, I want to ask this as an intellectual yeah. question, right? Like, and I actually think that one of the one of the ways that current ways of doing diversity work do a great disservice is that they don't ask interesting intellectual questions. Right. Why is it a value to meet people where they are, as opposed to say, as by the way, Howard Thurman said of his Morehouse education, mm -hmm. Morehouse raises a crown above your head and challenges the student to to ra uh, rise into it. Sure. So I think there's, there's two reasons for it. Um, I think the thing that we're missing in this work right now is asking the question, why aren't people jumping out of the woodworks to do civic discourse? Why is this work met with so much resistance in different parts of society? Why is it that uh, really liberal students on campuses like UC Berkeley and really conservative students on campuses like University of Mississippi don't think that civic discourse is necessary? Why is it that most young people right now uh, suffer from a pandemic of loneliness, as Sanjay Gupta's put out as a national, or not Sanjay Gupta, sorry, Vivek Murthy's put out as a national health advisory? Get your Indian straight, bro. Yeah, I know, I know, all of us, geez. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's how I had been manufactured this conversation, you know. Um, and I think the fundamental challenge is that we are not addressing and understanding why it is that people are not engaging this work at scale. And the question that I keep coming back to is I don't think we are meeting them where they are. I think meeting people where they are is the number one way that you get somebody to buy into what you care about. Right now, I think that there's three broad avatars of young people on campuses. I think the first is the really engaged political nerd slash activist that believes that they know the world and that's how it's gonna be. And that they are fully engaged, they vote in elections, they participate, and they're oftentimes most resistant. I think the second broad avatar, Ibu, is the 70% of students that just don't care about politics. I think that's honestly broadly American society as well, that just don't care, are, are either apolitical, or as Jeff was saying in our breakout, relatively kind, and they don't want to touch anybody's toes. And then I think the third group of people are just too busy and too bogged down by life to have the time to engage in a conversation with somebody that's different than themselves. And I think that when I entered this work in 2017, which is our freshman year, like, nobody was asking the question, what are students thinking? Why are they not engaging in this work? Why are they not intellectualizing? Why are they not discoursing to the degree that we want them to be engaged? And so I think having an understanding of who our students are, who our young people are, will allow us to meet them where they are so that we can get them in, bought in. Is that what you were sort of trying to get at? Yeah. Um, and what's your critique of it? Well, I so, you know, Day one of basketball practice, the coach is like, I'm not meeting you. Like, we are doing the opposite of meeting you where you are. 
right? Which in, is what I would appreciate in, in, in a basketball weeks, team. Like, definitely give yourself to this. Yeah. I'm not saying I, I I'm not saying I like this hook line and sinker. I'm just yeah, yeah. offering a different yeah, archetype, yeah. right? But but um, listen to me for the next six weeks. You're not going to like all of it. You're not going to understand all of it. And in six weeks, we'll start winning basketball games. Yeah. Right. And I mean, one of the things you know, like I, I often say that I operate from kind of an Obama posture, which is not a, necessarily about policies. It's about an orientation towards the nation, a and temperament all the in the world, a te but a temperament and an orientation, right? Uh, um, what, what, what Obama, at least for me, represents in the narrative. Like, I'm not, I, I think that part of the Obama genius was to say, I see your goodness. There's other things in you that I might not like as much, but I'm gonna tell a story of your goodness, and I'm gonna tell a story of our aspiration, and we're gonna go from here to there, right? So I, I. So here's a question, actually. You said basketball team. You know, when, you're, when your coach says that you're gonna, you sit with me for six weeks, we're gonna win a game, what is the outcome of civic discourse? The outcome of civic discourse is that our institutions, our, our, our lives are better, hmm. our institutions function better, we are the Why? America that we were meant to be. Because doctors from different religions don't say, I will not perform heart surgery with somebody with whom I disagree on the line in Jerusalem. And, and what I want to say is that is totally plausible. It is totally plausible that if, if people on PTAs and school boards are saying, I will not serve on a school board with a person who wants to burn books for a different reason than I do, which is basically like where we stand in a society, right? Yeah. Like, like basically like the image I have of our society is like there's a large pile of J.K. Rowling books and a roaring bonfire and like a fight between two groups of people and the fight is not whether you're gonna burn the books, it's what's the banner gonna say, hmm. right? <laughs> Bon burning the J.K. Rowling books because she's a transphobe or because she's anti-Christian, right? right? If, as, as Daniel will tell you, right, like the mother science of America through Tocqueville is, is the art of association. Right. It's our civil society. It's how, that is where we self-govern. We self-govern in our school boards and in our PTAs and in our bowling leagues. And if we are unable to cooperate across diverse identities and divergent ideologies, everything goes wrong. Yeah, it everything falls apart. Goes, it falls apart. Yeah, the reason why I asked that question is stubborn ways because I think that's the exact level of stubbornness and critique that a lot of young people meet this work with, which is why is it necessary? Why is it important? And I think we have to be masterful at articulating the why behind this work because I think that right now students and young people have a deep sense of alienation. There's a collapse in societal identity. A lot of us have only online relationships. I think it's a totally different worldview. And so the question for me again is how do we engage? So I, I really quickly, before you go, I just wanna tell everybody, we're gonna have questions in like three minutes. So please, I'm very curious to hear what we think about this because I took this conversation so many different directions because I wanted it to provoke some thoughts and also critique. Go ahead, sorry. So I, I think part of the lesson of the bear is I'm not meeting you where you're at. Back by the to way, the bear. I, I, by the way, I am not saying, I'm, I am not advocating for this hook, line, and singer. I'm mm. offering a different archetype, yep. Yep. right? It's, this is, the, this is the restaurant we are going to be. We're gonna be a 10. You're gonna get there or you're not gonna be here. And I am going to give you everything you need to get there. So Marcus wants to be a 10 pastry chef, Carmi sends him to Copenhagen, right? Like go study under a master pastry chef. And I actually think like there is something really powerful to Isan, to we are going to run an exceptional institution. And it's not about how you come in. Right, like if you give yourself to the practices and the processes, you will improve in ways that matter. Right, you will become Sydney in the bear. Right, you will go from restaurant to restaurant, tasting dishes, and say, "I can, I have the craft to recreate this at home." Hmm. And we, as an institution, will achieve our purpose. Back to something that John said yesterday. I think that that's like, by the way, like you know. Uh, I was just talking to Jonathan Rausch about this. Like, 
my organization, Interfaith America, we start as a religious diversity organization, right? That's, and we stay in that lane for a long time, partially because the way you get good as an institution is you focus on one thing, right? Never trust the menu with seven different cuisines on it, right? Mm. You focus on one thing. But what we have realized, especially over the past couple of years, is that the framework by which you do religious diversity work well, respect, relate, cooperate, actually is a very useful framework for doing other kinds of diversity work, particularly across a, a, a divergent political ideologies, right? And it's something to be good at. It is something to excel at. Bridges don't rise from the ground or fall from the sky. People build them, and actually building bridges is a craft. It's, it's like becoming a master chef. It's like becoming an excellent quarterback. Do you want to give yourself to being good at this? Right. You know, imagine if I told you there's a society out there with 330 million people, all of whom look differently than themselves, with different ideas, different religions, different diversity statements, different thoughts on how the world should look, heavily armed. And they were trying to make it work. I think that this is the most ambitious experiment in the history of humanity. And to your point, when you think about that institution that you're trying to build, I think we pay too little attention to making the link between pluralism and discourse is a mechanism to pulling off one of humanity's greatest achievements. And I think when we think about it in that standpoint, at least the young people that I engage with and interact with, they're like, holy shit, I want a part of that. Because that's a vector, I think, to something fascinating. Uh, I also want to say that thank you all so much for, for engaging on this very meandering journey because this was a conversation that I hadn't mapped out beforehand because I wanted to see what are the different topics that a lot of us are focused on and just make it a little thought-provoking to see your critique and get your input. And Ibu, I have tremendous gratitude for the work you do in your mentorship. And Ben and the Mercatus Center, thank you for all you are doing. Um, let's turn it over to you. I'm sure, I'm sure there's some thoughts. Yes, Leah, go for it. I'd like to ask you both how plausible you think pluralism is at the level of a school board. Um, because a school is an institution that has a culture-shaping goal. Like, is it plausible to have a shared culture-shaping goal when it's not a dispute about you know, just who should possess Jerusalem, but when we teach our elementary schoolers who they are, should we say their gender is an open question we want them to actively investigate? Should we say it's part of who they are and they should receive it as a gift? Should we teach the controversy, which is kind of satisfactory to neither and denies both claims. So are school boards really a plausible laboratory of pluralism or to be institutions, do they need to have a shared goal and worldview to operate? I mean, John just made eyes at me. John was like, good luck with that one, brother. Uh, <laughs> look, school boards have to be, right? Like, so, so what, what's, what's, what, what are, what's pluralism? in real life outside of conceptual definitions. It is, pluralism is a place where people of diverse identities and divergent ideologies gather and cooperate. That's what pluralism is. And imagine the, uh, the alternatives to pluralism, which is people from diverse identities and divergent ideologies do not gather in places. You have societies like that, most are. The Muslims are here and the Catholics are here, and it is basically a segregated society by ethno-religious lines. The other option is that people from diverse identities and divergent ideologies do gather, but they don't cooperate. They fight, right? So as long as we are going to have schools, and I want this to continue to be the case, as long as we're gonna have schools in which people of diverse identities and divergent ideologies gather, we have to find ways to cooperate. Now there's multiple ways to do that. I think one of the ways is you have to be able to bracket some fundamental disagreements in order to work on others. So that's what happens in a basketball team. People on a basketball team, they want to burn books for different reasons too. But they bracket those disagreements in order to work on other agreements, right? I think that part of what I would do if I was running a school board or if I was facilitating a school board meeting on the contentious issue is I would ask the question, which books do we agree on and why? Let's begin from that. Let's tell the story of cooperation. Let's recognize that this is an achievement. It's an achievement that we agree on these things. 
What if somebody on that school board says that I don't even want to engage that person in a discussion because they're fundamentally evil? So I, I think that you have to, that, that, and this is where, I actually think that this, this is a case study that we, that bridge building programs should have. Like bridge building mm -hmm. programs at universities should have a case study that says, if you were facilitating this school board meeting in Irvine, California, where like they're banning these 12 books, right? Or in Grapevine, Texas, where they're banning these other 12 books, how would you facilitate that meeting? So the way I would do it is I wouldn't start with that person. I would know walking in out of the 40 people in that room, which 20 to not start with, right? Right. So, so and, and this is like, I think part of the beauty of this is like, this is real life. Like somebody has to facilitate that school board meeting. And I think part of what the, the world of pluralism should offer is we've got people who can do that. Right. right? Like if you're, if you're in the world of conflict resolution or mediation and something blows up on the other side of the world, like somebody's calling the whatever negotiation lab at Harvard and saying, can you send someone? Can somebody call us and say, my school board is blowing up. Can you send someone? Can your people do this? That's where the rubber meets the road. Right. Questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, so I think you'll get immediately why this is a, an irrelevant question, what you're talking about. How do you talk to people about what is important without triggering their political identity immediately? Yeah. So I, um, I go in between being a fan of Cornell West and not a fan of Cornell West. I'm going to tell you a fan of Cornell West story. So I saw him on a book TV like 12 or 15 years ago. And uh, I don't know what book he was, he was talking about. But, but there he is in like his black three-piece suit as always. Uh, and uh, Caller opens by saying, um, listen, I disagree with you on everything politically. But I'm a huge jazz fan. I love Thelonious Monk. And Cornel West says, brother, let's talk about Thelonious Monk, mm -hmm. right? So like, I, I think that this is, it's, it's, an, it's an instinct, it's an orientation, it's a knowledge base, it's a skill, like conflict mediation, like being a point guard, right? It is our job as bridge builders to know how to not trigger somebody else's political oppositionalism. Like if I do that, I like give me a one out of 10. It, that's, it's a skill set. You should know how to do that, right? And, and they're, they're, I don't think it's that hard. I don't think it's that hard. Well, I think the other piece of it as well is that your politics, the prob, one of the trends that I've at least seen is that our politics are re, uh, replacing our religion in, in some ways. And people's identities are becoming more and more wrapped into their politics. I think the, the, your question was much easier to answer, I would assume, uh, 20, 30 years ago when you didn't have political identity so deeply wrapped up. Um, interestingly enough, yesterday we had Vivek Ramaswamy on the podcast, who um, is running for president on the GOP side. And one of the things that he, he had talked about was, again, using story. Um, and there was an interesting in parallel between him and Obama in the sector that you're talking about, which is that you've got to be able to meet people, let's say not where they are in some instances, but at least tap into their humanity. So thank you for that question. Uh, go ahead, Christy. I just want it to be noted that I made no comment on Vivek Ramaswamy. No, no. Don't worry. That episode will drop soon. Oh, man. I might have gotten myself in trouble. As a, pa I, as a parent of two uh, collegiate athletes, uh, I think your framing around sports is an interesting one because they play in a sport that largely has been lacking diversity. And I think the, what that brought to mind is this tension, and, and I think sometimes we think of it um, too much as being intention, the idea of cooperation and the idea of destruction. Because I don't think those are, uh, I think it's a false binary. Um, because I, I recognize, and I think a lot of us probably who, are, who, have, who, ha, who have been at Stanford 
who have achieved a certain level also recognize that that didn't come completely through cooperation, that there was a lot of destruction of norms and institutions and practices that had to happen before cooperation was possible. And so I actually don't think of it as a binary or that things that are intention, I think it's a process that builds and in fact most social change has usually come when there's been some major disruption, some major destruction of something that exists in order for cooperation to happen to build on. And so I just, I wanna put that out there because mm -hmm. I think the reason why we got to 70% in some sports is not because it was complete cooperation. There were a lot of people who worked really tirelessly to destroy a lot of things that needed to be destroyed in order for that 70% to be achieved and cooperation to be possible at a certain point. And could I just underscore this question a little bit as well? Because I think, Christy, you're bringing up a fascinating notion, which is that people will often ask, when is it time to build and when is it time to break? Um, is, it, is right now the time to fight? If you are on one side of the aisle or the other side, maybe there are some battles to be picked. So how do you maybe decide um, the need to destroy? Yeah. Because I think there is some historical evidence to what Christie's asking. Yeah, um, I, I think that's absolutely the case when it comes to a whole set of things, right? So I wanna say a couple things here. One is, I probably used the word systemic injustice an awful lot in 2010 and 2011 in kind of the lean-in era, right? Because I think that there was too much in that era that was about uh, individual effort. Like, uh, you know, if Obama's good enough to do it, if Sheryl Sandberg's good enough to do it, all of us are. I think we live in a very different time in which the idea of building an institution is so alien to so many people in worlds that I run in that that I think it is very useful to like have a different kind of emphasis, right? And so in some ways my stark emphasis is in response to a particular time. I do wanna say that I think that there are an awful lot of dangers to destroying things. And so like one of the things I've been playing with recently is like, like we right now in certain quarters of America, you have a bunch of Robespierre's auditioning to be Ayatollahs and that is a very dangerous thing, right? They are very good at tearing things down and then like eliminating the people that they think are wrong and then happily implementing a new regime, which I just think is a very dangerous thing. And by the way, like I think that certain ideologies which are ascendant now, anti-racism for example, are very useful as a critique. They are very useful in saying like, are we talking enough about racism? What happened to Jeremiah Wright in 2008 was racism, okay? There was not enough conversation about that. That was racism, right? When anti-racism becomes a paradigm and it seeks to explain the majority of facts in the world, it just can't. And then when it becomes a regime and it has coercion and punishment, then it is bad, right? And we have we have gone from anti-racism as a useful critique. Are we paying enough attention to the role that racism plays here? To a paradigm, this can explain everything, to a regime, that's bad, right? Mm -hmm. And my concern is that, is that in many quarters of American life, burning things down is not just an end in itself, but after I burn things down, then I have to eliminate the people who ran those things, and then I am going to crown myself and implement a new regime. That's what's, not good. What's interesting about that is almost that you're drawing a nuance to the types of critique and destruction there is, that there's a difference between implementing a regime that explains all of the ailments of the world and targeting it towards something specific. And I think that's interesting. So, I mean, here, here's one way of thinking about this, right? Which is, is public safety is a really important thing, okay? I am agnostic about the ecosystem of institutions that are gonna secure public safety. Clearly, family is one. Schools are another, after school programs are a third, the police are one. I'm agnostic, like, like show me, show me, I'm happy to like in some places it'd be 10% policing, 80% family, 10% schools, whatever, right? As long as it works. I look at, I think an interesting question is, not who is the loudest and most vociferous about the critique of a particular institution, but who do you trust to enact public safety? Like that's the big question. Not, not who is best at telling somebody else what they're doing wrong, but who is best at actually implementing a dignified, effective ecosystem of public safety. I would much rather have that second conversation. And again, in too many quarters of America, it's not being had. So I'll be completely honest with you. I have no idea what our time is, but. We have um, one, min well, one minute. One okay. more question, not we've one got, we've, I Because I know this conversation has gone on for hours. 
which it does, by the way, on the podcast, the whole majority, every Monday. <laughs> um, I think you had a question, sir? Yeah. There's a, there's a race. For, you can speak into both microphones now. So I'm dying to hear the, I think you were about to share some insights on the success of diversity in sports, uh, blatantly obvious uh, to you. And I'm just curious what that insight was. And um, I think you also yeah. had some ideas of how that could be um, implemented in physics departments. I mean, so there's a couple things about this that I think that thing is interesting, right? Um, uh, one is the basket's done 10 feet high, and the and the football field's 100 yards long. There's no change in the standards. One population of people just was better than another, just got better than another, right? And like that's what I tell my kids, right? Like, just live into your potential, right? The message from coaches to kids is, what's your aspiration? What's your talent? Are you willing to do the work to get from here to there? That's it. And part of what I love about the story of African Americans in basketball and football and Latinos in baseball, baseball's 50% Latino, okay? I mean, like, watch, go watch The Natural with Robert Redford and go watch baseball now. That's progress. I call that progress, right? The ethos is, what's your aspiration? What's your talent? What's the work you need to do to get from here to there? You willing to do that work? And look, one of, I think, the most cannibalistic things in the world of diversity work right now is the cultural currency offered for telling stories of what you can't do and what other people are doing wrong. So. That's, first of all, that is a denial of your identity, okay? Very few parents are saying in households, we take pride in our oppression. Most parents are saying in households, we take pride in our identity. We are proud of being black, Brazilian, Muslim, Jewish, etc. Our identity is a source of pride. It's not a status of victimization, right? And so, by making Islamophobia more important than Islam, that's actually a violation of an identity. That's number one, okay? Number two, at some point, if you wanna be a pilot, you just have to learn how to fly a plane. You can't just complain about the barriers in flight school. You have to learn how to fly a plane. And so when this kind of climate dissipates, and there's all kinds of people who've gotten cultural currency for the telling the stories of stuff they can't do, but they can't fly a plane, then you can't be a pilot. And that leads me to number three. The people encouraging stories, offering the cultural currency of tell me all the things you can't do, that's called entrapment. That's called entrapment. Because if you are telling people they're going to get positive attention for saying the things that they are unable to do, instead of just putting their energy into learning how to do those things, at some point that person is gonna go before a bank loan officer or a college board or a medical board and say, I wanna be a doctor. Well, what can you do? Well, here's all the reasons I can't do things. And if you have been a part of helping that person build that muscle of here's all the reasons I can't do things, you have entrapped them. Hmm. That is a really bad thing. That is a really bad thing, right? And the thing I love about sports is, at the end of the day, can you do it or can't you do it? And the thing I love about the example of athletics in America the past 50, 60 years is, oh, we went from zero black quarterbacks to 11 starting black quarterbacks last season, right? Black people are 12% of the population, 33% of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Turns out, they're just better. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you, Ibu. Um, thank you so much to Ben and the Mercatus Center for all the work you're doing. Thank you, everybody, for coming along and intellectual conversation with us. It's a journey. And I think one of the most important questions that we have to be asking right now is how does civic discourse respond to the, to need, to the needs of everyday Americans? Because I think that's what will allow us to break through 
and burst beyond almost the bubble of bridge builders we've created in some ways. And so I'm deeply grateful for your time. Thank you, Ibu, always for the conversation. And I appreciate you all. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was a wrap on the first ever live Hopeful Majority. And hey, you know it. We went from some amazing people to having some presidential candidates on. We went from Zoom conversations to live conversations. Your support is allowing us to continue to build. Last week, we had on Victor Xi, who's one of the most prominent Democratic advocates in the country and one of the youngest political leaders in the country. Before that, we had Vivek Ramaswamy on. You can check out a whole library of this because remember, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, the hopeful majority is coming at you live. You and I are going to build this together. We need all of us because it's time to fight, outrage, build nuance, one conversation at a time. I'll see you next week.